you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 9 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Tottenham, Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Mark, we got a spectacular reaction to last week's interview with Supreme Court Judge Gerard Hogan, who discussed the centenary trial of Erskine Childers. Uh, I know you're such an extraordinary story. You're you're a legal historian, so you love that. I loved it myself. It was really, really good. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Well, today we are delighted to be joined by the chairperson of the Bar Council, Senior Counsel Sarah Phelan, who is almost two months into her two-year term of office. And we're going to talk to her about her aims and objectives. I know she's loads of those. Uh, Where the Bar currently is and what challenges faces the the country's barristers. So that's going to be a fascinating interview. Uh, But first, we're going to discuss three cases which you have identified from the Decisis website. Uh, Today, we're going to start with a very important Supreme Court decision decision on the role of the Irish language in drafting domestic legislation, including statutory instruments. And this is a case called Glanmore Cave Chorinta uh, versus the Minister for Housing. Uh, and it's a decision of who else but? Mr Justice Hogan, friend yes, of the show. friend of the show. And it concerned whether the failure to provide Irish translation of statutory instruments uh, could prejudice challengers to a compulsory purchase order of Gaeltic lands. Exactly. Well, the, the compulsory purchase order in this case was by Irish Water um, and it concerned a, a peer in the Connemara Gaeltacht. And as happens very often with these matters, um, it was going to go for, to, a, to a public oral hearing. And the issue that arose here was that the legislation underpinning the compulsory purchase order or some of the relevant legislation hadn't yet been translated into Irish. And not only had the the primary legislation not been translated, but some of the statutory instruments uh, underpinning the, the, the legislation hadn't been translated either. Now, in the in Bernrochna Heron, there is a provision that once uh, legislation is passed in either Irish or English, that then an official translation needs to be made into the other the other first national language, and. In the High Court, um, it was found that a delay of 17 months in providing an official translation was excessive. And this was appealed by um, by the Minister for Housing. And in the Supreme Court, Mr Justice Hogan, this is a unanimous decision, um, upheld that finding that that it was a, that it was a, a, an unlawful delay. He also pointed out that there was a 10-year delay in wow. translating. There's something like 450 pieces of primary legislation that haven't yet been translated into Irish. Now, there's a, a, a body in Leinster House called Ranogna Hastrakon, I think it's called, um, whose job it is to translate the, these matters. But obviously, they're, 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 they're not, yeah, they're under they're not working Maybe they don't nights, have enough people say? employed. So, yeah, any linguists out there in yeah, the national language, yeah. so, um, there could be a, an opportunity but, available for exactly. you. Exactly. But just it's just worth saying, he 
he did, however, say it wasn't necessary for the statutory instruments to be translated into yeah, Irish. Yeah, explain that. That's with, quite significant, so, isn't it? So, acts of primary legislation, statutory instruments... What about European um, but directives, etc.? Exactly. He said, yeah. Well, well statu- some statutory instruments have the power to amend primary legislation yes. under the European Communities Act. And he said, in order to comply with the Constitution, it was necessary for those specific statutory instruments so to be translated. So, primary legislation, it must be Oscar exactly. Yeah, in order to comply with the Constitution. Requirement. Okay, very good. Next to an interesting decision in the area of receivership law from Ms. Justice Whelan in the Court of Appeal. This is the case of Ken Ken Fennell, I beg your pardon, versus Gilroy. And the case concerned Ben Gilroy, who is a well known activist and who, as a third party, was challenging a receiver's right to exercise rights over a property where the mortgagor or borrower had been in default. This case goes back to 2011, in which a judgment in the sum of over two million euros had been entered against the mortgagor. Exactly, yeah. So so the, the issue that arose here was that there was the, the, there was a mortgage, there was a default, a receiver was appointed, which is one of the options that's available to the bank. Generally, the question is, do they appoint a receiver or do they go into possession? And um, Mr. Gilroy, who w- was not the, mor- the, the mortgagor, he wasn't the borrower in ca- the case, but he tried to claim that he had a right of action by virtue of a contract that he had with the original mortgagor. Um, and he was thrown out in the High Court and that was upheld in the Court of Appeal. They basically said, it's not open to you to, to be challenging the right of a receiver if you don't have a direct cause of action yourself. It's the, you know, the, 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 the courts okay. try, to, try to discourage third-party actions. Yes, sort. absolutely. Now to my favourite case of the night, uh, Mark. Uh, and this is a fascinating case and it vo- involves your favourite topic, a cattle crush. You explained brilliantly what happens in a cattle crush uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and this is the case of McDermott versus Chagask. Uh, and it's it's a decision of Mr. Justice O'Moore. And it involved, um, I suppose the, the, the facts are very interesting in this case. It concerned a bovine embryologist who had been engaged by a farmer to carry out pregnancy tests on his cattle. And I suppose that's why they were in the cattle crush in the first place. Well, in fact, he was engaged by Chagask. Chagask. Okay, um, very good. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Uh, and this obviously involved restraining cattle in order to do tests and stuff like that. I'm going to let you take it over from here. Exactly. So, so uh, as I explained uh, before, um, for, for people like yourself who didn't gr- grow, grow up in the mud of the land... Um, the, plenty the, of time in the land, I'll have you know. <laughs> but anyway... But the, um, anyway, in order to, in order to, to carry carry out tests in, 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 on, on, a, on a book or a cow, you need to put them into a cattle crush. And in this case, in order to carry out the pregnancy test, which basically required a camera to be inserted where cameras needed to be inserted, um, a neck restraint was put on the cattle. Now, it was open to the embryologist to, to, to also put a rear restraint on the cattle, but that would slow down his work. And as was pointed out by the, 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 the court, um, he was being paid by the animal. So he was trying to, 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 to test as many ca- yes. cattle as possible. Once in one instance, once the neck restraint was removed, somehow the, 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 the cow actually fell on top of him. And so he suffered personal injuries. And obviously he sued Chagas, claiming that they had some kind of unsafe system. And unfortunately for, for and, him... And was the, the neck brace not sufficient? Was I'm sure that was the argument they advanced. Well, I think the the the... the, the, the 
problem was that the neck brace didn't stop the animal moving backwards. Effectively, okay. that once once the ne- the animal was released, that then that somehow the the, the the animal fell over and and caused injury. Whereas if the rear restraint and this was admitted by yes. the plaintiff, that if the rear restraint had been in place, he he wouldn't have suffered the injury. So, so Mr. Justice O'Moore said you should have put the rear restraint in place. Exactly, and therefore the defendant then, was not liable. Indeed. Okay, so we're going to come back very shortly with the chairperson of the Bar Council of Ireland, Sarah Phelan, Senior Counsel. Silence in the Fifth Court. Okay, it is my great pleasure to welcome to the studio Sarah Phelan, Senior Counsel, who's the chairperson of the Bar Council. Sarah, you're very good for coming in to us. Thank you, Peter. And even though you're the doyen of Inns Quay, I believe you've dashed all the way from Kilkenny. Well, I live in Kilkenny, uh, so that's where I'm based with my husband and my son. And I used to, before COVID, travel up and down on the train every day. But uh, since COVID and since taking over as chair, there are some evening meetings or afternoon meetings. So I've treated myself to the luxury of actually uh, renting a place in Dublin. Yes, well, that's probably necessary, isn't it? And you're two months in. How's it been so far? Before we get into the nitty gritty, how are you enjoying it so far? I love it. Uh, really love it. I'm actually surprising myself as to how much I'm enjoying it. Great. Even the more difficult bits, I'm still enjoying them. So yeah, it's great. Really, 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 really. It's wonderful. Okay, brilliant. Okay, well, let's go back. You mentioned you're currently living in Kilkenny Mm -hmm. and I believe you're a Kilkenny woman, true and true. I am. My mother and father are both Kilkenny people or, well, they're now deceased, but were both Kilkenny people. I grew up in Waterford, actually, and then went to boarding school and then came to Dublin but since '01, I've lived back in Kilkenny full time. Okay. And the law didn't grab you initially. You were initially a scientist, I believe. I was. Sarah, is that right? Well, in school, I was probably my, my best subjects were maths, chemistry and physics. So they were, I suppose, pushing me in a particular direction. And I didn't want to do medicine. And I didn't want to be a dentist. They were the two kind of sciencey uh, careers that were looking at me. And my mother suggested that I do pharmacy. So yes. like a good, good um, sensible gig, obedient 17 year old, I, I put down pharmacy as number one on the CAO and I got pharmacy. So I didn't really give it any serious thought. My mother always said it was a good job for a woman. And it's only now looking back that I understood what she meant in terms of career flexibility and time flexibility. If you were having a family or you'd other commitments. But, you know, at 17, that was not on my radar at all. So I off I went to Trinity. Um, I was 18 in the August, so I was just gone 18 when I started in Trinity. And I really enjoyed the course. Yes. It was four years and I, I mean, I loved it. Um, the subject material was really interesting and I was a good old crammer back in the day. So six weeks before the exams, the, the head went down, yeah. the subjects got studied. Very valuable in the law. Let's, let's be honest <laughs> about it, guys. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. But I was two weeks into working as a pharmacist and I realised it wasn't for me. Okay. Now, that was in community pharmacy back in the day. That was really where one went if one didn't go into industry. Hospital pharmacy has come an awfully long way in the last 25 years or so, so even more actually. So I think if I were doing pharmacy now, I might have gone into hospital pharmacy and I might never have become a barrister. Yes. But back in the day, um, it wasn't really an option for me. So two weeks in, the light bulb moment and you said, I think I'm going to do something else. But was it law at that stage or was it, you know, something completely different? I had to do a licence year uh, to become a member of the Pharmaceutical Society. So I did that year and then I said to my boss, okay, I will work for so long as it takes you to get my replacement. 
But if I get a job in the meantime, I'm going. But I mean, I applied to 40 odd pharmaceutical companies back in the day and not one of them had jobs going. So this was back in the late 1980s. Ireland wasn't in wasn't a successful economic place as it as it as it became in the noughties. So it took me a year to get a job in industry. And then I moved to Leo Laboratories in Dublin. And it was when I was in Leo Labs that I decided I was going to do King's Inns. Yes. But obviously not having a law degree, I had to go in and do the diploma, first of all, two year diploma. And even then, I, w- I didn't really want to be a barrister. I was doing that because I thought it would be good for me career wise, but I didn't know job. what the career yeah. was going to look like. Of course, of course. But then when you got into it, were you into debating or any of that sort of stuff in the background? I debated a tiny bit in school, Asquelga, actually. Uh, but no, I wasn't okay. particularly interested. So there you go. To all the folks out there, you don't have to be a debater no. to be a very successful barrister, as you are, Sarah. Never mind your new gig as chairperson of the Bar Council. Yeah, no, I wasn't interested in debating, wasn't interested in public speaking, wasn't interested in anything like that. But I did the diploma. Really interesting. I mean, we we, we had William Binchy lecturing us in torts. We, we had Eamon Leahy um, very good. lecturing us in criminal law. I mean, really, really good lecturers. And it just grabbed me. And then I did the degree and it was when I was in the first year in the degree, I started doing moot competitions. Okay. And that's what I So you got into it then at that stage. Okay, very good. Then I decided I wanted to be a barrister. So when were you called? What year? I was called in 96. 96, okay. And you had to devil. I devil. So who did you devil with? Well, I suppose I didn't make up my mind to come down that year, come down to the law library until very late in the day, I thought I might stay working for another couple of years and earn a bit of dosh, which, as you know, is very important in the early years. But in the meantime, I'd actually gotten married. So I had another, I had a supportive spouse who still Always is important. a supportive spouse. <laughs> uh, but it was important. Always important. Very good career move. <laughs> so then Tom said to me, you know, if you're going to go down, you may as well go down with all your compatriots in the inns because it's easier that you're all poor together or not earning a wage or earning an income together. So that's what I did. Came down in 96 and late in the day, uh, started looking for a master. And it wasn't as competitive as it is now in, in terms of people to, trying to line up masters in the areas that they actually have an interest in. Mine was a lot more organic than that. So I had been previously friendly with Vincent Hinehan. He was devilling with Una McCran the year before me. And Vincent suggested Una and... I met Una and said, she said, yes, you can be my devil. I'll be your master. And that's how it worked out. And Una, so Una was leading, a leading fantastic. leading council in the area of PI. Yeah. I presume in other areas as well, but that's how I know her. And, and Medneg. So, and Medneg, of course. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, Una was a fantastic master. She had a very broad junior practice at that stage. Lots and lots of different areas. And I was on my feet doing motions and doing whatever a devil does. Got up and running. And up and, and running, yeah. And when I first met you, it was down in the southeastern circuit. So obviously, after your stint in Dublin, yep. Kilkenny was calling again, was it? Yeah, well, somebody who features a little in my career progression, um, Marguerite Bulger, of uh, judge of the High Court now. Yes, recently appointed. Yes, but Marguerite was actually, still is, very, very good friends with my middle sister and Marguerite's a Kilkenny woman. So as Marguerite actually put it into my head, you know, something going on circuit would be a good thing. And I had a chat with Una and she agreed. And then Una's husband, Noel McMahon, sat opposite Aidan Walsh in the Irish Bay. You know, these things are very organic, Peter. So Noel had a chat with um, Aidan for me and Aidan suggested, well, Aidan suggested Tom Tian as my master on circuit. So I spoke to Tom Tian, now retired judge, and then I went down in circuit. 
And to be honest, I didn't look back. Oh, wow. Well, you're never going to look back with Tom Tehan, in fairness. Father of the Leinster Bar, as we all know. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Uh, an all-round good guy. Yeah. So, so wonderful. Now, you are... Family law is that what is that? What, am I right to associate you with family law? Maybe that's a little unfair. No, no, you you are right. But again, went down on circus, did everything to begin with. Tom didn't do any or very very little family law, but um, I, I did PI, I did crime, I, I did licensing, I did landlord landlord and tenant. I mean, on circuit you kind of do everything to begin with. You don't it chooses you, you don't choose it. And but I was lucky because so I went down in circle in ninety seven. The Family Law Divorce Act had just commenced in early 97 and there was an opening, there was a floodgates of, of family law applications. And I suppose it was a question of being in the right place at the right time. And I was interested in family law. Mm. And there was certainly a perception, uh, certainly early on in the circuit, that family law was very much sort of uh, dominated by women. I mean, was that was that sort of opportunity in the sense that it was it, there were more women coming into the bar at the time that family law developed, or do you think it was just an area that men sort of steered away from, or was there is there any kind of logic that you can put put to it? I don't think I can put any logic to it, Mark. I mean, it it developed for me organically. I was there. I was interested. There were some male colleagues on circuit doing family law. Uh, when I came down on circuit, there weren't that many females ahead of me. There weren't that many women. So Marguerite was obviously there before she came back to Dublin and established her employment law practice. We had Sally O'Kelly, Mary Laverty was there, Onya Swift was there, but there weren't that many women. So I, I think I just fell into a niche, to be honest. It, it was luck. It was timing. Yep. And, and and we had Keith Walsh on a few weeks ago, but I mean that's I, right. I, I listened to the, I listened to that podcast. And, and, I mean, as, as I said to him, I mean it's it's an area that certainly to the extent that I've gone into it, it it, it can be quite dispiriting if you're not used to it. It's a, it's a, there are a lot of quite um, you can very easily come out of court and think there are no winners in this. I mean, did you find it got you down at times, or is it an area you were able to work? No, it never got me down. I think I was lucky. So I, I was 30 when I came into the library. So I, I had that bit of life experience sure. behind me. And I just learned very quif- quickly to develop a, a Teflon skin. So, you know, you go into court, you do the best for your client. But when you come out, you have to leave it behind. Sure. And and I was actually really good at doing that. Yeah. Uh, but I think that was from a promise I made to myself when I actually came into the library that I was never going to look at anybody else and look at how their practice developed. I was just going to deal with my practice. And and one of the other promises I made to myself was I was never going to worry about stuff I had no control over. And to be honest, I I think they were two very good life skills that I developed, which enabled me in many respects to, to develop a career in family law because I did my best, but I didn't take home my clients' issues. Because if you did, you weren't going to be able to advise them properly. And I learned that very quickly. And it would be very easy to do that in family law, wouldn't it? Because there are just so many issues involved. It is very easy to Mm. do it. But I think if you do it and if you identify with your client, then you're not doing the best for your client. Sure. Okay, and let's talk about the Bar Council, Sarah, mm-hmm. because as you, you established a wonderful practice, which you still have, and you are working busily at, as well as doing this job on top of that. How did you get involved in the Bar Council? Well, to be honest, Peter, I mean, when I went down on circuit, I rarely came to Dublin. So between 1997 and 2013, when I took Silk, I wasn't a regular attender at the Law Library. But for personal reasons, I suppose, I I had a son in 2006. And and for the first number of years after that, I was interested in getting him established and into school. 
then I took silk in 2013. He was yes. in, I think, first year, first class at that stage. And then as I began to gradually reacquaint myself with Dublin, I began to get involved in more law library or bar council issues. So I think the first thing I did was I, I became a tutor on the advanced advocacy course. And then thereafter, I became involved in the Law and Women Mentoring Committee. And I suppose gradually I was looking for things outside um, my professional life to to keep me interested. Previous to that, I'd been uh, a um, chairperson of the Board of Management in okay. my son's school in Kilkenny. Yes. And I liked the idea. I mean, I, I've always liked the idea of volunteering. So whether it's inside the law or outside the law, I, I also did some... Um, actually took over from Marguerite again, the Kilkenny Citizens Information Centre. I did legal information evenings there um, before I had Hugo. And then, as I say, afterwards, I, I was looking for other areas. So okay. I digressed and, into... And as some people mightn't realise, but in order to get onto the Bar Council, you have to be elected. And it's do. a tough election. I mean, there's, you know, that it's, 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 it's a tough electorate, I have to say, <laughs> you know, and trying to convince enough people to vote for you because you're going up against colleagues. There's a lot of people you who are. vote for it. So you did very well to get elected. Well, I tend to do things and then ask how to do them afterwards. So somebody suggested I put my name forward for the Bar Council. And I said, fine, I will. And then I set about wondering how I was going to achieve the election. And I've done that in other areas too. I mean, I've, I've never really thought too much I've gone ahead and done something. Just give it a lash. Give it a lash. I'm not afraid of failure. For me, I think it's worse to let fear hold you back. So I'd rather do something and not not achieve it rather than let the fear hold me back and not actually do it. And did, did you have particular issues when you first ran for the Bar Council that you were looking to put forward or was it just a, a, an interest in kind of bar politics? Well, I, I think nobody would accuse me, I think, Mark, of being uh, interested in bar politics up until I got on mm. to the council. And I, I really didn't know what to expect. And it was it was an eye opener. I mean, an absolute eye opener in terms of the amount of voluntary work that is done behind the scenes. There are, you know, 13, I think, committees and any number of people involved in those committees, both elected members and non-elected members. And... I just had no no concept of the amount of time and effort that people gave willingly to the Bar Council. And it was when I got onto the committees that I actually saw the work and became more and more interested. And Which committees were you on in the first instance? So in the first instance, I, I chaired the Arbitration ADR Committee. Now, that kind of fit, fitted into my mediation. I did a lot of mediation. I'm very involved in mediation. And more latterly, uh, some arbitration as well. So that kind of floated my boat. Education and training floated my boat and the PPC floated my boat. That's and the I Professional Practices Committee. Professional for... Practices Committee, yes. And I suppose having come from a re regulated profession in pharmacy, that whole background, that really, really interested me. And I'm, I, I love the concept of legal ethics and where that leads us and, and what is permissible and not. So that really floated my boat. Yeah. Okay, and not only did you get elected to the Bar Council, but in September this year, you were made chairperson and you had to be elected again by the members of the Bar Council. Another wonderful achievement, Sarah. Well, thank you, Peter. I suppose looking back, it is. Uh, at the time, I so I did two years on the Bar Council, 19 to 21. They were a very interesting but difficult two years because of COVID. And then I got re-elected in 21. And I suppose it was when I was being re-elected in 2021 
that that sowed the seed then in terms of maybe I will try for a chair yeah. in 2022. And it's all, it's all out politics, isn't it? I mean, you have to you have to convince oh. your colleagues that you're the one. Yes, that you was... Know, a, it doesn't that automatically a, happen. No, and that was a really interesting... <laughs> I can imagine it was. ...experience. Can we, can we put that on mic? <laughs> Very interesting experience in terms of, you know, just alliances and, yes, and, 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 and all of that. And, and I was lucky. And is it um, to, to decide to go for chair again? Were there sort of areas that you wanted to push, or, or when you talk about alliances, are there? Were, I, I mean, it's, if those of us outside the bar council, we wouldn't know what these alliances are. But there were, are there are there people who are looking to prioritise one area rather than others? No, I think the, the alliances were more in terms of getting oneself elected, Mark. Um, thereafter, obviously, the council is is very cohesive in terms of working for the betterment of the members and mm. and, and, and the profession. But I do, I, I, I did think, you know, Maura, my predecessor, had a, she, she showed great leadership during yeah. COVID. And, and, and her focus was in terms of moving us out of COVID and dealing with all the issues that COVID brought to us. And, and there were a number of them. And then obviously she commissioned, well, the Bar Council, but through her leadership, commissioned the EY report yes. into the profession. So that then gave me a significant segue into what I thought I might achieve during my term. Yeah. And and the term is only one year, but there's a tradition that the chair goes forward unopposed for a second year. So practically it's 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 hopefully a two a two year term. Mm. And as as you say, Peter, I'm just in, in I'm in a West Week just at this in, stage. Yeah, just in and settling in, you know, but you have loads of ambitions. Will you just set those out for us, Sarah, just at this stage? Before we get in again, we'll ask you about some of those. Yeah. But just just you're generally what would you like to achieve over those two years? So I think if I were to sum up my in, in one word what I would like to achieve for the profession in the next two years, it's relevance. So I want us as a profession and as an independent referral bar to be as relevant to the society that we serve now and in the future as we have been in the past. And obviously our our Irish society has changed significantly in the last 20 years or so. And, and, And how that society is made up. Okay. We have, I mean, we we have a greater population and we have a more inclusive population now than certainly we had when I started as a barrister back in 96. Okay, the word relevance is very interesting. Do you you think there's a possibility that we might become less relevant? Well, I think if we don't move with the changing times, we are going to become less relevant. Okay. And and therefore, it's, it's to look at how we can change with society, keep up with society and keep up with technological developments and developments in, in, in other areas that we, we can then move on and people still need us. Because if we don't change, we are going to get left behind. Okay, okay, that's very interesting. And as you said, under your predecessor, Maura McNally, who was brilliant, and you're the third woman uh, chairperson, aren't you? Bella Carroll going way back, way and back. then Maura, and obviously now yourself. But she commissioned the EY report, and that told us a lot, didn't it, about the, about the profession. What did the Bar Council pick up from that? Well, the Bar Council picked up a lot. I mean, the EY report made 51 recommendations, and of those, 46 are have either been implemented or are in the process of being implemented. And then it made five recommendations in terms of a business model, uh, which EY termed a mehel. And there was a working group um, assembled to, to look at the concept of the mehel. I was on that working group and we felt that the concept of a mehel wasn't really going to put 
the bar where we needed to be. And can you just outline for our listeners, what, what, what do they mean when they talked about it, Mahal? I mean, obviously, we, we know the tra- tradition mm. of people all working together in the fields and uh, helping their neighbours and that kind of thing. Yes. But in bar council, ter- oh, sorry, in barrister terms, what are we talking about? Well, what they what they looked at or what they thought was that we would there would be a, a grouping of barristers, not chambers, but, but a loose grouping of barristers who... Of, of senior barristers and junior barristers, very junior and very senior and, and, and everybody in between, who might have a, a subject matter in common or, or who might have other, other um, issues in common and that they would work together, they would market themselves and that they might share, that there might be some admin, administrative task sharing as well. But we looked at it and felt that at the moment we have devil families and that there are other perhaps groupings that we felt the Mehel wasn't going to cure one of the ailments it needed to cure, and that was inclusivity and diversity. So we we felt that the concept of the Mehel wasn't going to work, but we did commit ourselves to looking at our business model. And that is what we are in the process of doing at the moment. Sure. So we're in the very early stages of that, but that is my one one of my number one priorities. If one can have more than one number one priorities, but anyway, it is it's to look at that business model to see how we can develop to make sure that we're attracting the brightest and the best into the library. We are retaining the brightest well, and the best. That's the big issue, isn't it? It I mean, is. I mean, the brightest and the best often leave the law library for bizarre reasons. It, it can be hard to understand why somebody who is very talented is not is not making it. And then others make it as well who are also very talented, let, let us add. But um, yeah, like how do we retain people? It is a difficult game for so many people, isn't it? It's a very difficult game, Peter. And and there's no doubt about that. But we're all self-employed. So I, I, I think we all, we have to start at that basis. And being self-employed in any profession is a difficult business. Sure. You don't work in to, you don't walk into a salary. And I suppose that's the first issue we have where you have the large firms now in Dublin offering a significant salary at traineeship level. Yeah. And and I've heard figures of 45, 50,000, 55,000 yeah. quoted. But a lot of people could be the law library for five, six years before they're earning that kind of money. Or longer, Mark. And lots or longer. longer. As well, yes. So, first of all, we have to attract those those who would be attracted elsewhere, but who might have a have an inclination to be good barristers, we need to attract them in. So we need to look at how we're going to do that. And then you're right, Peter, we need to look at the retention. Now, I have to say, a lot of people leave the library for very good reason and move on to stellar careers elsewhere. Sure. And we've just started an alumni association and, and we had a, a an inaugural event a, a number of weeks ago that was really successful. And various former members of the library came back in to speak about how their careers have developed and progressed since they left the library. And so people come in and they they may not stay for a variety of reasons, but we want to make sure that those who want to stay can stay. Yes. And that's a significant issue that we we have to grapple with. And, you know, we we don't all have the answers, 
But until we grapple with the issues, we're not going to come up with the answers. Well, you can't give somebody a job, Sarah. I mean, that's the point. I mean, you can try and assess, assist people and maybe create panels or there can be different ways of maybe doing things, improving things. But at the end of the day, as you say, you're self-employed and there's a risk, unfortunately. There is. And the ball doesn't always bounce fairly. Um, generally, you know, it's a meritocracy. We would agree with that. But, you know, it is, it is difficult. So there's, there's only so much you can do. There's only so much we can do, Peter, but I think we can do more than we have historically done. Okay, good. I mean, one of the obvious um, challenges, I suppose, for a lot of people is when they when they become parents, and obviously it's a particular issue for women, but not just for women. Um, has the Bar Council ever looked at opening a crash or doing something to make it more, uh, address the balance? Because it's one thing to go part-time if you're in a job, but it's very difficult to go part-time as a barrister because sometimes you need to work more than 40 hours a week and sometimes <laughs> more than twice 40 hours a week. So... Back in 2015, the, um, a lady involved, Maura Butler, involved with the Irish Women's Law Association, approached David Barneville, now President of the High Court, but when he was Chair of the Bar, to look at developing a mentoring um, system for women in the library. And in around the same time, the, the, there was a survey done and the women's, of, of all members, and the women's working group was born out of that survey. And... They at that time, so this was back in 2016, perhaps, they looked at having a creche or starting up a creche at that stage. And, and, and the the work was done, um, I, I suppose, in terms of was it feasible, feasibility study. And it was felt that a creche wasn't an option for the law library because, first of all, you have statutory regulation in, in, in terms of the numbers of staff you have for very young babies. And also then a lot of women didn't want to use the creche five days a week. So it the, it was looked at and unfortunately it was decided, Mark, it just wasn't a runner. And we've had but more what, recent queries as well. Can I just come in there? Just But, but a more recent mm-hmm. intervention by the Bar Council, if we're to believe what we read in the papers, Sarah, is an initiative to try and encourage work for female barristers. And, you know, again, if we believe what we read in the paper, some of the lads aren't happy. They're not happy about this, Sarah, is there? What do you say about that? I thought that might come up, uh, Peter. So, well, first of all, I, I think the, 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 the first thing we need to be careful of is I wouldn't believe everything I read in the paper. <laughs> okay, fair enough. And But you would believe everything you hear in a podcast. <laughs> absolutely. Particularly when it's the chair of the Bar Council. <laughs> uh, so, yes, we have an equitable briefing policy. It is to be launched next year in, in 2023. It's been a long time in the development and we looked at other jurisdictions who've had developed and had an equitable, equitable briefing policy where it's been successful. So so two of those jurisdictions are New Zealand and Australia. And the idea of the equitable briefing policy is not to promote women over men. OK, I, I, I think that's, that's a, a misconception. And... First of all, when a solicitor is choosing a barrister, and, and, and this may apply more to the solicitors in the large firms and, and, and perhaps who have commercial clients, but that obviously they need a barrister of a particular seniority or not, depending on the case. They need a barrister, obviously, with a particular area of expertise. And then the idea is, is that when they have those boxes ticked, seniority and expertise, that they would make sure when they're giving a list of barristers to a client, for that client to choose, that they would make sure they have 
women on that list as well as men. So really all the equitable briefing policy is doing is asking solicitors to look outside maybe their normal briefing panel. Okay. Yes. And to in- so make sure... a form sure of women- positive action, though, just to sort of to make it more inclusive. Is that what you're saying? Well, it's, it's, to, it's to make it more inclusive in terms of having women on the panel. But it's the client on, on, on those commercial levels who, who would have a say in terms of who the barrister is. So it's still for the client. If, if the client is faced with three men and three women on a panel, it's still for the client to say who they want. Yes, of and course. We're not and you can't ask- interfere with that, of no. course. Yeah. And we're not asking that solicitors would ask the client to prefer a woman over a man at that level, but it's simply having women's names included in the mix. And be more open-minded, I suppose. That's, Absolutely. That's it. Can I, can I just, I, I notice we're getting signals through the window, Mark. We're, we're galloping along here. This is where we're using up loads of time. We probably should talk about the, the you know, COVID, post-COVID, mm-hmm. uh, online court hearings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You mentioned Mr. Justice David Barnival. He took over from Ms. Justice Mary Irvine as President of the High Court. Mm-hmm. And he's brought about a bit of a change. He wants more in action, more court action, maybe than had previously been the case. How do you feel about that? Oh, well, we're welcoming it with open arms. And and I suppose President Barneville has taken over at a time where the whole society has opened back up again. And and, and therefore his initiative in, in terms of making as many hearings in person as possible has been really welcomed by us. But I do think we as a profession also need to take that initiative because sometimes it's very easy to do a, a hearing online from the comfort of one's office or one's home. Yes. Or the floor of the law library. And instead, we need to, I think, we, we need to shake ourselves up a bit and we need to make sure we're getting back into court. Yeah. Where there are, so where we have an option of an in-person or a hybrid hearing and and, and, and a lot of the applications at the moment can be one way or the other. Um, we need to make sure that we are back in court insofar as we can humanly possibly be. I mean, I do accept some members may have caring responsibilities and it's easier for them to do something from the comfort of their home office. Mm. And I mean, there's obviously, we had Jared Gork and Stephen Dowling recently, and both of them thought that uh, that online hearings were, were a manner from heaven because at last you were able to, to, to do a hearing while you were at your desk. It didn't mean you have to take half a day out. And I must say, from looking from the other side, I mean, <clears throat> certainly as a, as a junior barrister, if you've got a motion in a long motion list, you can take an entire day waiting for it to come on for hearing. Whereas at least if you're in your office, you can work, you can do other things, you can keep an eye on what's going on and you can be ready for the hearing. I mean, it, it, it's, it's certainly not a, uh, not a one-way street, is it? I mean, a lot of people really like the, the online hearings. It's not, Mark, but I think my, my concern is that the efficiency that's achieved with online hearings means that the other advantages to being in court are lost. So if I'm a junior barrister and I'm doing an online hearing, then I don't have the chance for another solicitor or somebody else to see me on my feet. Because let's face it, if, if you're just looking, if, if you've somebody online, a solicitor online, looking at a junior colleague doing a motion online, first of all, that solicitor isn't concentrating because they're probably doing some paperwork or whatever, um, waiting for their case to come up. And I do think being back in person gives junior colleagues a much better opportunity to promote their skills in person and for somebody else to notice those skills far more so than you would online. 
And I think then as well, the other issue is that if if you have people in court, you're because you can't be making phone calls in court, you're more likely than not to be listening to what's going on in court. Whereas if you're online waiting for your own motion to come on, chances are you're doing emails or you're doing something else. And I think then the learning opportunity for being in court is actually lost when you're online. You don't see people making mistakes even. You don't see people doing things that you think, oh, actually, I could have done that a better way or a different way. And I, I think those learning opportunities are lost. But you can't, I mean, you can't run a court list entirely on the on the educational benefits for junior barristers. I mean, it's you know, the, the, the delays involved in in. I mean, hanging around a court for want of a better term. I mean, you very often see 20, 30 barristers sitting in court just waiting for, for their short motions to come on. It's a great way on. to catch and up and gossip, must, though, isn't it, Sarah? You know, <laughs> it's not all bad. No, and and also I think this is a case of, and I've used this phrase in, in, in giving speeches before, the whole is definitely more than the sum of its parts. Yes, absolutely. Mm. So I, I think we have more to lose by being online than we have to gain I, I think we've much more to gain by being in court because there are other efficiencies gained when you're in court. I might see a colleague that I know I have another case with and I might talk about that case with that colleague and maybe narrow the issues or set up a meeting or something else. And I'm not going to do that if I'm online. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, can I can I bring you on just because we, we are galloping through time, Sarah, this has been really fascinating. And we have our little questions at the end, which we have to get to as well. <laughs> Beforehand, you are the representative now for the barrister's body, dealing with the state, for example, dealing yes. with the government, dealing with the Minister for Justice. Tell me about that. How do you feel about doing all that sort of stuff? Well, I think that's really important to have that dialogue with government and with the Minister for Justice and the Department of Expenditure and Public Reform, which is where we need to focus our our our, our efforts at the moment, um, particularly with the area of criminal legal aid. Yes, and we've had we've had ongoing dealings with the Department of Justice, and back in 2018, the Department of Justice actually agreed. And, and 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 also the DPP agreed that various efficiencies that barristers had promulgated meant that their this, the criminal legal aid fees should be restored, the, the the fees that had been cut during the during the recession, and 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 they weren't actually FEMPI cuts, but they were those cuts were made during during the FEMPI cuts, and the Department of Justice and the DPP felt that our fees should be restored and then it went over to the Department of Expenditure and Public Reform and that is where matters lie, Peter, at the moment. We had Catherine McGillicuddy in here and I was asking her, what's the mood like up there in the Phoenix Park? Is there a febrile atmosphere? Sarah, are you going to be leading the charge? Should we dust off our placards as we speak? Well, I'd love to be able to look into the crystal ball, Peter, and tell you you what's going to happen. But certainly... What about a strike? I mean, this is what people are mentioning. Our colleagues across the water in Britain did that. They did in Britain and it was a very different setup over there. Okay, very good. So I'm not going to promise anything on that score. Uh, we'll, ju- we'll just have to wait and see. So quiet diplomacy for the moment. I think quiet diplomacy will get us a long way. Okay. Mark, do you want to ask uh, the, 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 the final key question? We have so many more questions to ask, but I think we're, we're, we're kind of 35, 40 minutes. We have to wrap it up at this stage. It's a recommendation to the legal profession from the chairperson of the Bar Council in terms of either a book or a film or I, possibly both. Um, Great. What do you say for us? 
Well, I think my film, I had two films, but one of them was actually recommended by a previous interviewee and that was um, To Kill a Mockingbird. But anyway, my other my other recommendation, and I think this comes from the fact that we can never be a juror. Yeah. So 12 Angry Men. Of course. And I, yeah. I think 12 Angry Men, 1957, it's an absolutely classic. Henry Fonda. <laughs> yes. And I, I've watched it, I don't know how many times. Yes. And I just think the whole, the the interplay between the jurors and the, the psychological interventions. And it's just fascinating because obviously I'd love to be a fly in a jury room wall, but I'll never get that chance. No, absolutely. And what about your book? Well, those who know me will know that I'm a, an absolute fan of Philippe Sands. Of course. And so I have two of his books to recommend. Uh, first of all, East West Street and the whole, um, it, it really explains really, really well the the, I suppose, the concept and, and how it came about of crimes against humanity and, and, and the concept of, of genocide and, and, and how they came to be formed and thought about um, in the context of the Nuremberg trials um, back in the 40s. And I, I just found that book on so many levels to be absolutely fascinating. And then his more recent book, um, The Lost Colony, about the Chagos Islands and, 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 and how they were taken from... Um, Mauritius by, by the British government at the time. And that's a fascinating introduction to the International Court of Justice. Okay. And, 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 and they're and still, looking for, still looking for compensation, is that right? They are. But I, I think more recently, in the last number of weeks, the, 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 the British government has indicated a willingness to actually engage, which is a significant step forward. Okay. Wow. Well, they're definitely two wonderful new titles to add to our list, Mark. You can put that up on your website. Sarah, can I just thank you? First of all, you're only two months into the gig. Can I wish you every success over the next two years? And it will be two years. It will be two years. You're a wonderful representative for us all, all the barristers and the four courts and beyond throughout the country. And can I thank you most sincerely for coming in and being a guest on the Fifth Court? You're more than welcome. Thank Thank you, you, Mark. Thank you, Peter. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, Chairperson of the Bar Council, Sarah Phelan, Senior Counsel, who talked to us all about her plans for the Bar Council over the next two years. It's going to be a busy time for her, Mark. Absolutely, yeah. A really interesting time. Yeah, and she's 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 all set uh, and has great intentions. So let's watch this space. Uh, I would also like to say a big thank you to our producer, Conal O'Moroin, and to the Dublin South Podcast Studios for recording this show and doing so. Such a wonderful job. If you have any comments or any legal stories you would like us to raise, uh, you can contact us via our website or on LinkedIn. Uh, and as always, we're asking you to share the podcast. Any friends, colleagues, students, anybody of your acquaintance who might be interested, just let them know. How are we doing on the charts? I haven't checked it in a while. I, 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 I check them every morning, but I don't think we've Connell is waving to yet. the window. He says we're at number eight. So we're holding a top ten position. That's not bad. Not bad. Can we get a Christmas number one? <laughs> who knows? Who Mr. knows? Mine. Okay. So for me, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you soon in the fifth court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.